Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. He grew up in a small town, strike that a village, which we get because here in central New York, we have several villages. And when you grow up in a small town or you grow up in a village, you have the propensity to talk about other people's stories like they are your own stories. And his profession was selective. In fact, if you were to look through the pages of Genesis and Revelation, only about 70 other people had his job. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a prophet, to be so close to God? And not just any prophet, but a premier prophet. You could say he was like the modern day Billy Graham, a true evangelist. And to be a prophet, you probably got to be in good physical shape because to run into it, to go into a town and tell other people things that they didn't want to hear, you're probably in good physical shape. But one day he shows up to work and understand when he shows up to work, there's a lot of pressure. You think you got pressure at your work. If he gets his job wrong, it could cost him his life. But one day he shows up and he gets his assignment from God. And his assignment is to go and preach good news to his enemy. And the moment that he would have got the assignment, he would have begun to visualize the scene of walking up to his enemy because outside of the city walls were piles of skulls. I mean, it's Halloween, 365 days of year, bodies laying to the left and to the right. I mean, first impressions, hospitality were not their priority. Their priority was to show that they were a powerful, powerful group of people and that they killed to attain their power. You see, for the next few weeks, we're gonna be looking at the life of the prophet Jonah. And he's faced with a difficult decision. His relationship with God is being tested. Will he trust God when everything within him says, no, I don't wanna do what God is telling me to do. You see, the story of Jonah is so much more than a a children's story that we read about on Sunday school. It's so much more than maybe the the flannel graphs that you grew up with. It's not about the whale. In fact, it's not a children's story. It's a a PG-13 type of story. There might even be some moments today where we wanna put the air muffs on the kiddos if they're nearby. But for the next few weeks, we're gonna be reminded that when it comes to depth in any relationship, depth is dependent upon dependence. And we see this when a newborn comes into the world. This is a picture of my new nephew, Miles Zachary. This is my brother, Devin. And you know, you experience certain milestones and markers in your life. And this is a milestone or marker for me. I'm an uncle. It's a pretty cool moment. But I was reminded, but even when our, my own daughters were that tiny and how an infant is so dependent upon their guardians for survival. But as we grow older, we transfer that dependence to someone or something else. And as biblical Christians, what we believe when we talk about lordship, what we're saying is that we're transferring our dependence upon others, the world, or ourselves to Christ. And that we're increasing our trust and confidence in him and him alone. 
And so if this is true, depth in any relationship is dependent upon dependence. And I think most people would agree with me that when it comes to depth in a relationship with Jesus, the depth of our relationship with him, with Jesus, is a matter of our dependence on him. So if you want to grow deeper, you simply need to increase your dependence upon him. And Jonah's story is, is very similar to our stories where we've all had moments in our life where we've been faced with difficult decisions where we're going to choose either we're going to trust in God and have faith and confidence in him or we're not. For many of us right now in this season, we're wondering what's going to happen with the outcome of the election. And even if the outcome isn't what we want, the choice that we're going to be faced with is will we live in fear or disappointment or, we're, or will we trust that God's still in it? and that God's still working for our good and for his glory. Now, the story of Jonah takes place during the time of King Jeroboam II. And what you need to understand is during this time, Israel's borders had expanded the most since the time of King Solomon. And there was increased prosperity and increased wealth, which led to materialism. And this group of people thrived on injustice to the poor and oppressed. But God didn't send Jonah to speak to that group of people, to, to speak to that set of difficult circumstances. Jonah's assignment was the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. We pick up now in Jonah chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And Jonah's father, his name meant truth. And in Jonah's time and in his culture, your name mattered. You would talk about what your name meant around family dinner conversations. So this means that Jonah grew up in a home where truth matters. And as a prophet, he would have known that truth is not optional. It's not my truth, your truth, that there's one truth, and that's the truth of the scriptures. And God tells Jonah to go. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And this is a command. It's not, hey, let me send you a calendar invite. And if you can fit me into your schedule, I'll see if I can make it happen. It's no, go to the great city of Nineveh. One of the largest cities in the world at that time, known for its architecture, known for its arts, and known for being home to some of the cruelest people in the world. And this is that earmuff moment. Because what the Ninevites would do is they would skin people alive. They would skin women men and children, and they would take their skin and spread their skin over the city walls. They were known for burying people alive with their head above the sand, and they would take out their tongue and drive a stake through their tongue. And people would be languishing in pain, and eventually they would die of thirst. And you would say, whoa, that's too much for Sunday morning. Well, here, here's the deal. For you to truly understand what God was communicating to Jonah, you had to understand the context. So knowing that context, my question for you today is this. If you were Jonah, what would you do? Let me put it into today's context. Imagine someone violently assaults someone that you love and care about, and God gives you the command to go and share Christ with them. Or imagine you've been hit by a, uh, a drunk driver and they've permanently disabled you, and God gives you the command to go and share Christ with them. Or someone attacks your reputation, affects your ability to provide for your family, says, says things that are just simply not true about you. And God says, go and share Christ with them. You see, if we're honest, we can see ourselves in Jonah. So God says, 
Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you're not of faith or maybe you're just tuning in today because you were curious, there are two common objections when it comes to the Old Testament or for the Bible for that matter. And even if I'm not describing you, you probably have people in your life that might agree with what I'm about to unpack. Or maybe you've heard people share similar objections when it comes to the Old Testament, or even about the fact that the people like the Ninevites full of, of evil and corruption, why doesn't God do something about that? You might've heard someone say something like this, God is all powerful and God is perfectly good, but evil exists. And how do you reconcile that? Well, the good news is, is that if I was sitting down having a cup of coffee with someone and they were to share this argument with me, I would say, well, I'm glad that we agree that evil exists because if we're willing to acknowledge that evil exists, we must also acknowledge that good exists because if you're gonna have a standard for right or wrong, we're also gonna have a standard for what is good. An example of this is that if I were to score 45% on a test, the only way we're gonna know that that's not a good score is to agree that the standard is 100%. And so the moment that I see that the standard is 100% is the moment that I come to the awareness that 45% does not meet the standard. And the same way, if we acknowledge that evil is the absence of good and evil and, and pain and suffering and corruption is not what we want to experience and not what we would say is best for other people, we must also say that good exists and lean into the argument that God exists and that he wants what's best for his people. And the way that God addresses the problem of evil is through his son, Christ. The author of Hebrews reminds us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Christ came and lived amongst us and experienced the same type of evil and pain and suffering that we experience, but one who has been tempted in every way as we have yet without sin. So is God powerful enough to snap his fingers and do away with the evil and suffering in the world? Absolutely. But we must also not forget that when God created the world, he created it good and it was free from pain and hurt and suffering. And God has every intent for giving us the opportunity to experience a world that's free from hurt and pain and suffering once again. And his solution was his son. And even his own son was not immune from pain and hurt and suffering. And so if you're thinking, okay, but my problem's not with Jesus because Jesus is, is love and, and I'm good with the New Testament. My problem was with the God of the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is one that just seems full of vengeance and, and is thirsty for blood and seems so much different than the God of the New Testament. A question might be this, why does the God of the Old Testament seem like a, a moral monster? There's a well-known atheist and scholar by the name of Richard Dawkins and he says this, that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And then he goes on to list several descriptors for God that I had to look up and that I couldn't pronounce. And here's where he lands the plane, a capriciously manipulant bully. I mean, some kids grow up loving their blankie. This guy loved his theosaurus. But here's the reality. So if we were sitting down, uh, having a conversation, I would say to Mr. Dawkins, hey, have, have you ever broke the speed limit? To which he would say, yeah. Have you ever jaywalked? Yeah. 
You see, the argument that is being made here is how can God hold people accountable for breaking his law and his standard? And what I find interesting is that when other people do wrong, we're quick to rationalize and say, when we do wrong, it's just this. I didn't, you know, everyone breaks the speed limit. You know, every, everyone jaywalks. I grew up during a time where people stole cable. This is what you did. And then in college, people stole music, Napster, illegal downloading. And now we share streaming accounts where we share, you know, logins and passwords and we don't really pay for it. And we say, it's not stealing. And we justify when we do wrong, it's just this, it's not that big of a deal. But the moment that someone hurts us or wrongs us or violates the law. When others do wrong, we want justice. And this is Jonah. And this is me. And if you're honest, it's you. Now here's a spoiler alert. For some reason, if you don't know how the story of Jonah unfolds, I apologize. Here's the spoiler. God's sending Jonah to the Ninevites, not to wipe them out, but to give them an opportunity to repent, to turn from their sin and to experience faith in their creator. New life, new opportunity. It's a message of hope. And so God says to Jonah, go, but Jonah's response is no. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, 1500 miles in the opposite direction. This is what my wife did to me when I was trying to woo her. She fled the scene. My wife's mom was the ministry assistant. Her cubicle was in front of mine. The high school pastor's wife was trying to set the two of us uh, up. And so I got to know Kirsten's mom and she was trying to say to Kirsten, hey, I think you should give Rob a shot. And I would strategically place myself in the worship service closer to her each week. And she would move farther and farther away each week. She was fleeing the scene. But to, to help you understand what it was like for Jonah, it'd be like a Jew that was living in New York in 1942 and God shows up and says, I want you to go preach against the Nazis. I want you to go to Berlin. And, in, and instead, that, that person makes the decision to go to San Francisco, get on a boat and head to China. That's what Jonah was doing. He went down to Joppa in the opposite direction, fleeing the scene where he found a ship bound for that port. And this is how the enemy works. Whenever you want to run away from God, he always has a ship there waiting for you. And that ship is fueled up, that ship is stocked up and there's no line you can climb on board and set sail in the opposite direction of what God wants for your life. So here's a reality check. If we want to run from God, there is always somewhere to run to. If you want to entertain where your mind wanders and thinking about uh, sex outside of, of marriage, there's always someone there to, to help you entertain that thought. If, if you want to entertain your, your thirst for greed and, and the pursuit of more and more, there's always a sale there waiting for you. If you wanna uh, fuel your pursuit of quote unquote, you know, venting or seeking counsel from one person, but then it's one person, a two person, a three person, to four person, and you're having conversations with everybody that but the people that can actually help solve that problem. If you have a, a thirst to gossip and slander, there will always be listening ears waiting for you. And if, if God puts it on your heart and gives you that prompting to share uh, Christ with someone or to talk about the hope that you have in Jesus, there's always gonna be somebody else there waiting for you to talk to other than the person you know you need to talk to. And, and this is what Christians do. Sometimes when we're faced with decisions that we need to make, and we know what we need to do, we'll say, I'm not gonna make that decision. I'm not gonna do it. But the good news is, is that I have peace about it. It just seems like the stars are aligning and there was this open door and this was signed. So you know what? I know what the scriptures say, but 
I feel good about this. I have peace. Let me tell you, I have peace every time I put four scoops of ice cream in a bowl with peanut butter sauce, marshmallow, hot fudge, and a chocolate brownie. I feel peace. I feel good about that. In fact, the other night, you know, one of the things that I, my weaknesses is that I stress eat and it was like 10, 15 at night and I went into the freezer. There was no ice cream, but there was a frozen pizza. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna eat my problems away. And him, my wife said, what are you doing? It's 10, 15 at night. You should just go to bed. It's okay, honey. I got peace about it. And I feel really good about this decision. Listen, listen, <laughs> that's not peace. Peace from God is assurance of what we know to be true, not what we wish to be true. Jesus said that he has given peace to his disciples based on the truth that he has overcome this world. And that peace ultimately is a fruit of the spirit. And that when we allow the spirit of God to rule in our lives, we will experience his peace. But the danger here, the caution here is that Satan is in the business, our enemies in the business of giving false peace. Genesis 3 reminds us that the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. Hmm, or you will die. And so then the enemy, our enemy's there, Satan's there. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, false peace, eh, wrong. There's a better guide for decision-making. And that better guide for decision-making is God's word. The author of Hebrews reminds us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of, of, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, God's word is that compass in our life. And anytime the ship begins to head in the opposite direction, God's word brings those things to the surface that we need correction in and says, here's the choice. You're heading in this direction, but now the choice is yours. And the same was true of Jonah. Ultimately, the choice was his. And he chose to continue to head in the opposite direction after paying the fare. So he bought a ticket. No one's holding him at knife point saying, you need to do this. No, it's a choice. He went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So here's an uncomfortable truth. We're never farther from God than when we're close to him and say, no. We're never farther from God than when we're close to him and say, no. You don't need me to unpack Greek or Hebrew or deep theological thinkers to get honest with yourself and identify those areas in your life in which you're choosing to run away from God and what you're choosing to say no to God. You know, maybe it's a relationship. You know, the relationship needs to come to an end, but they look so good and they got a job. Not sure where they're at with Jesus, but we look really good together. You ever gone on a rationalization quest where you go around and you know what you're supposed to do and you don't like it, so you call up other people to help you feel good about the decision that you're making or not making because they happen to share the same opinion and you know exactly who to call. Here's the good news, or I'm sorry, here's the bad news. You can't run from God. You can't run from God. A basic theological truth uh, is that there's nothing that you can hide from God. There's nothing that he doesn't know. There's nothing that God is surprised about. There's nothing going on in your life. You would say, oh, I didn't see that coming or I'm, I'm caught off guard. I'm, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that this was taking place in your life. And the same way that there's nowhere that you can run to that God is not. You see, here's the good, the bad news is, is you can't run from God, but the good news is, is that you, you can't run from God. And so the moment that you stop running from God 
and you're, you're exhausted and you're huffing. I've been running for so long. And you finally look up to catch a breath. God is right there waiting for you because God does, God does not create us and abandon us. He pursues us. See, another translation of this same verse that we're reading adds a word. Most of the time we use the NIV version, but this morning I also want to use the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And if you're new to faith, one of the things you got to understand is that when we transfer uh, the God's word from the original language to the English language, it can be a complex process. And so there's different translations to help us understand the original intent of the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in this translation, one important word is added. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. And anytime we see a word repeated in the scriptures, we want to pay attention because this word presence in Hebrew is panim, which means face. And when I saw this, I was so encouraged because I was reminded that Jonah is running from the one thing that he needs the most to be in the presence of God. And I love that this word presence is where we see the meaning of God's face, his existence, him being there with us. And so that person that feels like they're facing a mountain or that person that, that knows this clear path in terms of the direction that God is leading them, you're saying, I don't wanna say yes to God. I wanna say no to God because I'm afraid of what might happen next. Don't miss this. The face of God is greater than what we face. In other words, the, pro, the presence of God is greater than the problems that we're facing. The face of God is greater than what we face. So if you're facing addiction, if you're facing fear, if you're facing clear direction from God and it terrifies you, the face of God is greater than what we face. The presence of God is greater than our problems. So here's a question that I'd like us to all wrestle with this week. In what way might you be saying no to God? Where in your life might you need to take a step and increase your dependence upon him? For some of us, the ship in our life that is there to take us in the opposite direction and to help us say no to God is our phone. It's always right there. It's super convenient to take our mind off of the things that we know that our mind should be thinking about, to preoccupy our time, to avoid the things that we know we need to face. For some of us, the ship in our life <laughs> that's ahead us in the opposite direction, it's our cell phones. For other people, the ship in your life might look like this, your wallet. Now, ladies, if you're watching, you're thinking, that doesn't look, oh, don't have to worry about that. So I don't got that ship in my life. Uh, but for you, you know, the point here is, is your finances. The ship in your life that you're not willing to deal with is the lack of dependence on God when it comes to your finances. Now, I wanna say this, if you're new to faith or not of faith, I wanna give you a pass for the next few minutes. And I wanna to speak to those that are seasoned veterans, those that have been walking with, with Christ for quite some time. 
that need to be challenged in this way. See, what's true about Western American Christians is the average Western American Christian gives 2.5% to their church. Now we have many generous people at Eastern Hills that give above and beyond that. And we're grateful for your generosity. But the average Western American Christian gives 2.5% of their household income to God's church. And if you were to make $50,000 a year, you would be giving about $1,500 to the church, which is the average amount that most Americans spend on fast food alone. And here's what's alarming. During the time of the Great Depression, the average Western American Christian gave 3.3% of their income to the church. So people give less today than they did during the time of the Great Depression. And you could say COVID. Well, these stats come from a few years ago, back in 2018. Now, I don't share that to guilt you into considering what it might look like to trust God with your finances, because that's not gonna work. God wants us to be cheerful givers, to be motivated and trusting that this is what God wants for us, that it's best for us to trust him with our finances. You see, there are three responses to God's call for obedience in our life. The first response is, God, I won't. And this is what we see with the prophet Jonah in chapter one. Nope, not gonna do it. The next response is, God, if I have to, it's, it's dutiful obedience. Well, I guess if I have to go to church, because that's what we do. I guess if I have to pray, that's what we'll do. I guess if, if I have to give, that's what I'll do, because that's what you do. And I guess if I have to tell people of Jesus, you know, there's no joy, there's devotion, but there's not delight. The third response is gospel transformation. And that God, I want to increase my dependence in this way. I wanna increase the amount of sacrifice I make in my life. I wanna increase my time. I wanna increase my investment of my talent. I wanna in increase my investment of my finances. N not just because I, I, I would have to do this because I want to do this because I get to. There's devotion and delight. You see, biblical conviction is being convinced that God is for you and wants what's best for you. It's being convinced that I'm going to trust God in this way and I'm gonna grow in my relationship with him. You know, truthfully, when, when Kirsten and I got married, it, it was a challenge to think about tithing, to, to give 10% of our income because we didn't have a lot of income. And it was an act of faith. But the thing that motivated us, the things that we were compelled by is what other investment would we rather make than the investment of God's church to help grow his kingdom here on earth? And the consequence of that decision was growing in depth in our relationship with Jesus and our dependence upon him and his ability to provide and to show us what happens when we trust God. Hebrews 11.2 says to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And then the author adds this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I wanna close with this gospel reminder. Before you said no to God, he said yes to you. And to be clear, every person at home watching online, at some point in our life, we've said no to God because all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us have you know, said, hey, here's God's way and his will, and we're gonna do things in our way according to our will. But as we think about what God is sending Jonah to do, I want us to think about this. Before you said no to God, he said yes to you. And he said yes to that politician that you can't stand. And he said yes to that criminal, that liar, that murderer, that thief. 
and you said yes to that person at the grocery store, <laughs> they cut you off in the parking lot. And he said yes to that group, the Ninevites. In the same way, he said yes to you, that person that, that you stare back at the mirror that feels full of shame and guilt and anxiety. I said yes to you too, because the joy that was set before him on the cross were all those that would turn from the sin, even the cruelest people on the planet like the Ninevites, all that would turn from sin and trust in God and have faith to transfer their dependence upon themselves, others in this world, and to transfer their dependence on God and God alone. That's deep. See, depth in any relationship is dependent upon dependence. And to be a disciple is to be a lifelong learner, to always be asking yourself, in what areas of my life am I saying no to God and might I need to say yes and to increase my dependence upon him? Would you join me in prayer? And then Kristen's gonna close us out today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder today that in many ways we are like Jonah, that we will turn and run in the opposite direction of those things in our life that you challenge us with. When thing doesn't make sense, when things get hard, when things get difficult, there's always that ship that's there that's waiting for us. And we can justify it and we could rationalize it, but your word and your truth is alive, it's living and it's active. And so as we do business with you this week through your word, would you help us see those areas of our lives in which we're saying no to you? and to help us see the joy and freedom and satisfaction that can come from placing our dependence upon you and you alone. As a church, would you help us to increase our faith and confidence in you and in difficult seasons and seasons of transition and seasons of the unknown? Would you use it for your glory and our good to deepen our dependence upon you? The years from now, these would be stories that we would told and say, hey, I'm not, I wasn't sure how it was gonna work out, but I trusted God and I'm so glad that I did because my relationship with him was never the same. Would, would you allow that to be true of us and as our church moves forward? Father, I pray for that person that is skeptical, that's struggling to trust you. Would you remove their fears? Would you answer their questions? And would you give them a faith and assurance? that Christ is their Lord and their Savior. And I pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the Ministry of Eastern Hills, click the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.